Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois. All of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Afro-Jewish philosopher, political thinker, educator and musician, Lewis R. Gordon, currently professor and head of the Department of Philosophy at Yukon Stores in the United States. He is also visiting professor of philosophy at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa, and honorary president of the Global Center for Advanced Studies. His previous academic works include What Fanon Said, A Philosophical Introduction to His Life and Thought, An Introduction to Africana Philosophy, and Not Only the Master's Tools, African-American Studies in Theory and Practice. His latest book is titled Fear of Black Consciousness, and this is what none other than Angela Y. Davis had to say about it. Lewis Gordon's expansive philosophical engagement with the current moment, its histories and globalities, its politics and protests, its visual and sonic cultures, reminds us that the ultimate aim of black freedom quests is indeed universal liberation. Professor Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted. So um, first off, I wanted to ask you about the title, Fear of Black Consciousness. When I read the title, I did wonder, is there a deliberate play on the Public Enemy album title, Fear of a Black planet or not just because there's so much pop culture references in the book which I was a huge fan of I was wondering whether that was in the backdrop or maybe not at all well actually it wasn't uh, this one <laughs> if I said fear of a black consciousness then maybe yeah. but yeah. no it, it 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 wasn't it uh, no. however I was well aware I mean I you know I'm a musician and I I know the public enemies um you know album and I very well and I talk about a variety of of, of uh, uh, musical genres, et cetera. But no, no, that, that wasn't the basis of it. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I made sure to say fear of black consciousness. Fair enough. Um, I suppose I was also sl somewhat connecting the dots because I suppose the album to me seemed to also be suggesting fear of all that, you know, black consciousness represents when it makes itself seen and heard and is recognised. But we'll delve into the different elements of that as you have presented them in the book. But I guess I first of all wanted to ask you about why you wanted to write this book and why now? Why this book now? Ah, well, it's a two-part story. The first part was that I was invited to write this book 24 years ago. Oh. And I sat down to write it. The The editor at the time was um, 
I mean, the person who invited me was Eric Chinsky. He was an editor for a publisher in Boston. And uh, he sent me an email. He loved another book I wrote called Her Majesty's Other Children. And he liked my he loved my writing. So he asked, would I be interested in writing a book on black consciousness? I thought about it. I said, sure. So I began to outline the book. But then life came in, came in the way. Uh, he had left that publisher. And I got involved in so many global struggles, a lot of political issues, all kinds of other stuff. I was part. I began to take on the American right wing to the point where I was receiving 500 death threats a day, you know, that kind of a stuff. And in the midst of it, suddenly you turn around and it's 20 years later. Now, 20 years later, not only did I go around the planet many times and also learned a lot about varieties of communities, and although there were things I would talk about formally in my earlier work, there's a real difference. Even if your analysis is correct, there's a real difference when you're on a ground level meeting human beings and understanding their lived conditions. So 20 years later, I've not only spent time all across the African continent, different parts of Asia, uh, through through Australasia, you know, um, Australia, New Zealand, etc., and throughout South America, but also a lot of my travels were at the invitation of indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And I also began to acquire a different sense of, of, of language appreciation, because although I'd studied classics in other areas and read, could read in French, et cetera, the, the understanding of the complexity of communicating with fellow human beings around their lived reality brought the nuance of language in. So what happened, of course, is, in, is that there's a, a rich array of resources to draw upon. So when Eric then moved to Pharaoh Strauss-Giraud, he said, you know, um, did you ever do that Black Consciousness book? I said, well, I thought, you know, you went on and dropped it. But I said, but I decided I'm so happy I did not write that Black Consciousness book then. Because what happened in between is we're in a world right now that's not only very different, we're in a smaller world, a world in which, for instance, you and I are across the ocean, we can speak to each other in a way that wasn't available then. And the way that traveling is, is, has been such and the way and the population growth it became very became very clear to me. We live on such a tiny blue dot, as Carl Sagan would say. And so there's all this noise and chess beating, but we're on a tiny planet in which our species is intimate while trying to create distance. Mm -hmm. And this effort, the imposition of racialization, colonialism, misogyny, we could go down the list. Those are efforts to create distance. And so, and in creating those distances, they create vulnerabilities. So suddenly I'm now returning to the book in the middle of a pandemic with the understanding that the pandemic wouldn't have even emerged if we had different relations with each other that would have contained those viral conditions early on. Mm. So I began to develop a theory of social pandemics. So once we put together all these different theories, I began to develop over the years, because at the time when he invited me, all kinds of other concepts that are in this book hadn't been formulated then, but work better for this book. Mm -hmm. This book then became 
a book that is of a global perspective of understanding the nuance, the subtlety, and also the complexity of what it is to live as a species that is aware of its responsibility for life on its planet. So I'm happy, I'm happy that I didn't write that book then because the book I write today, I, I could have written a decent book then, but I hope the readers see that I've written something that is far more than that. And, and so it feels so of the time, so much of it speaks to exactly where we are right now, which, um, you know, I, I mean, without giving too much away, I mean, let's talk about maybe the title to start off with and and the way in which the, in the book you talk about the distinction between, um, so obviously the title references fear of black consciousness. What, what do we mean? What do you mean by the term black consciousness? And what's the distinction that you make in the book? Or perhaps what is the purpose of the distinction that you make in the book between black with a small b and black with a capital B uh, to preface the word consciousness? Okay, well, first, let me begin with the word fear. Why do I bring up the word fear? Well, it's because, you see, colonialism, racism, misogyny, yeah, anti-indigeneity, all these ways in which people are dehumanized, they're able to be supported by an edifice of lies. It would be much, the effort, the, the more material violent efforts Although that is part of the history, that is a very inefficient way to dominate and control people. You could scare them, but eventually you run out of resources. Mm -hmm. It's more effective to get them to believe that they should be controlled, <laughs> that they are inferior, etc. And the best way is to turn the world upside down and make the falsehoods about them function as truths. Mm -hmm. so, so ultimately, the fear is of truth and reality. In other words, and I say it this way in the book, I say, I talk about his bad faith. I say that bad faith is a fear of, of the, an effort to avoid or evade displeasing truths through leaping into the arms of pleasing falsehoods. Mm. All of those things that degrade humanity are pleasing falsehoods for those who do the degradation and also among those who are degraded, who are afraid of the implications of actually standing up for themselves. It's easier to believe that you're inferior if you're afraid of acting, or in some cases you're bullied. There are times it's legitimate if there's a world that could just kill you, that's true. Yes. But if there is an opportunity to make a difference and you don't, that is connected to a form of investment in a pleasing falsehood. Mm -hmm. Now, the one of the pleasing falsehoods is what I call lowercase black. Mm -hmm. And that is the construction of black people from a from those who are anti-black. Mm -hmm. That's so that's a small b black. However, if you are conscious of being a small b black and the point of view of those who construct you that way, that's a kind of double consciousness. However, there's another kind of double consciousness where you say, wait a minute, there's something wrong with a world that constructs me as negative, as inferior, as bad. Maybe there's something wrong with a society. Maybe I'm not a problem, but the problem is the society that makes me into a problem. Mm -hmm. Now you have a potentiated double consciousness, a term developed by Jane Anna Gordon. And what that term means 
is now that you're released from the grips of the belief of your absolute inferiority, you can now you now have the potential to act of agency, and you realize that humanity can build something different. So that lowercase black is transformed into an uppercase B black, which mm. is an agent of history. And that agent doesn't have to be reactionary. That agent understands there's something wrong with the world that makes anybody inferior. So that person doesn't hate people who are designated white or brown or anything else. That person says, yo, we are being duped, misled. Let us work as human beings to create a, a, a world in which human beings can be treated with dignity, respect, and flourish. So that is the uppercase B one. And what would you say are some of the catalysts for that transformation from the sort of lower case to the capital case, uh, capital case uh, black consciousness? Are, are there any particular catalysts to, to look out for, to be aware of in seeking out such a transformation in ourselves or others? Sure. To, uh, to understand that, we have to understand what a human being is. Most people, one of the one of the lies that's presented from Euro modern colonialism and and all kind what dominates in the way we think about the way capitalism is in the world today, a lot of the other features, the lie is that a human being is a thing, a thing separated from other things, and it creates the delusion and illusion that we can be unto ourselves. And that's why there are people who are these radical kind of libertarian types who imagine that they, they're like gods moving through the world. We're very fragile, vulnerable creatures. But more than that, one of the things that emerge when we become aware of our relationship to reality and we take responsibility for it is that our actions, we're actually what stands out from being a thing. A human being even though we say the word being, it's more the active participle. We are an activity. In many societies, the language for human is always a language about doing something, becoming. We actually live and do, so to speak, our humanity. So once we begin to understand that, it means we always face our possibilities, which means we're never really closed or complete. Now, why this is important? If we think about colonialism, racism, we think about uh, capitalism, we think about all forms of exploitation, they are human-created activities. Because they're human-created activities and human beings are not closed and complete in things, it means everything created by human beings have the potential for change. So it means then colonialism has never been complete. There have always been, even among the population defined as colonizers, those who disagree with it and fight against it. And among those colonized, there are those who say, hell no, I'm not going to take this. I'm going to fight against it. The reason you and I could have a conversation right now is because we both have people in the past who fought for the freedom for you and you and you and me to be able to speak. Mm -hmm. So the thing we need to understand then is to unlock our human potential. That's what it's about. Because mm -hmm. once we can do that, we understand that the institutions of power are human created, and it's up to us as human beings to create different institutions of power. Instead of the power to block people, which is disempowerment, we could create the, powerment that the power that serves as the condition of possibility for people to act. That is empowerment.
And um, on that note, I was really struck because um, obviously I, I get I, I have the honor of reading a lot of books around, I suppose, radical transformation and uh, I count, you know, I, I suppose neo-colonialism uh, and forms of resistance to that. And I, I was really struck by your engagement in the book with the kind of wider neoliberal economic system that we find ourselves in, because I feel like a lot of textuality that comes out today is almost like a, a little superficial at that level, doesn't sort of delve into the wider structures that we exist in and that do affect the way we think of resistance and who can resist and how. and uh, and the relationship to racism, most specifically. Um, and so in the book you say, uh, and I quote, neoliberalism thus nurtures racism by undermining the conditions of addressing it. And I was wondering if you might be able to break that down for us. Sure. What neoliberalism basically says is that it will only recognize you if you have the designation individual. Now, here's the thing. I have never been discriminated against as an individual. I've been discriminated against as a black, as a Jew. I've been discriminated against in terms of people who deal with people who are queer. I've been discriminated against in many ways, but never ever as individually Lewis Gordon. Someone could dislike Lewis Gordon, but that's a different matter. But the people who discriminate against me don't have to know I'm Lewis Gordon. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you, have never been discriminated against in, as Miriam, you're discriminated against as a woman or as a Muslim, or depend, there is a long list, right? So we're discriminated against as groups. How are you going to respond to a problem of being, of how a group is treated if there is a system of power that will, refuses to acknowledge groups? And so by standing out of that, it leaves you to be fodder, basically, for those who have an imbalance of power to, 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 de to degrade you and to eliminate you in some cases. So mm -hmm. this is a problem. And the thing is, neoliberalism then masks it into something insidious as a kind of moral self-righteousness about the individual. But at the same time, only individuals who are part of a group with power get protected. So ultimately then, that actually creates fertile ground for not only racism, but other forms of dehumanization as well. And so I was um, listening to and reading that, of course, thinking of the ways in which a lot of the sort of resistance to racism today is couched in, you know, kind of addressing your own personal prejudice, you know, checking yourself, creating more diversity within your workplace. And I was thinking, how does that challenge structures of racism that have been created by a neoliberal system that relies arguably on racism for its functioning? Um, so what place do you see for or do you have any criticism or comment about a lot of the ways in which anti-racism is discussed today? I mean, you mentioned, for example, the term privilege and white privilege, and I know you have a preference for a different terminology around that. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. The big problem, neoliberalism, neoliberalism loves moralism. It moralizes the issue because moralism 
slides into the idea of how you individually or personally act as if you're a god who can change the world with a snap of a finger i mean it's act out in in fiction or in movies with character characters like thanos and the avengers stuff but the fact of the matter is ordinary human beings if we are going to moralize it we also create another problem because it inflates the sense of self and it creates a narcissistic response which is why many times we talk about racism or sexism. There are people who take it personally. There, there are people who are designated white who act like they, they change the entire issue about whether they individually are racist or mm -hmm. men who want to know if they individually are sexist. When we're not really talking about whether they are or not is not the real issue. Mm -hmm. I, I usually put it this way. I don't care there are immoral people in the world. I care that there is power in immoral people that enable them to step on me and other people. If you can disempower them, then what happens? And you can empower the people who are not devoting power to degrading and stepping on people, then I'm good. Now, mm -hmm. the problem with the moralists, the moralists, now that you are now freed to build a better world, instead of devoting energy to that, is obsessed with the idea that there are still immoral people out there and chase them down and try to root them out even when they're disempowered. That is connected to a perverse understanding of the issue because it fails to deal with its political dimensions. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing, neoliberalism doesn't want us to address the fact that racism and the other kinds of degradation I'm talking about are political issues. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why I'm critical of the privilege discourse. Because you see, there, there are several things. The privilege discourse is linked to moralism. If you look at almost every encounter about white privilege, right, it's about trying to get a white person to say, yes, yes, I'm privileged. Now, picture a, a, a black person who gets a white person to say, yes, I, yes, I, yes, I'm privileged. And then they both go home. The black person goes home to structural racism. The white person goes home to maintain structural white superiority. Nothing mm -hmm. changes. And mm -hmm. this is what the, those who are proponents of the system love. They love mm -hmm. the idea that they could say you feel good morally, but you don't change anything. In other words, you may change individual players, but you don't change the game. Mm -hmm. The issue is the game. Now we dig even deeper into this issue. Mm -hmm. If you look at the things that are called privileges these days, if you really unpack them, they turn out to be rights. Uh, access to education, clean water, to, to be treated fairly by the police, uh, or the criminal justice system. The list is long, right? Uh, right of movement, security, etc. Something's wrong with a world that treats those as special things you have. The those are basic human rights. The real so to say to white to people who are designated white, you should give those up is absurd. The mm -hmm. real issue is to say why do we live in a system that's blocking those things? from people who are not designated white? Or why are we're in a world where those things are being blocked for people who are not designated male? We can go yeah. down the list. The real issue is to expand the rights. Everybody should be treated with dignity and respect. Everybody should have access to good education, good healthcare, the list is long. However, if you think about the notion of supremacy, right? What that is, is to say that there's a category of people, back to the groups, who are exceptions to the rules that everybody else ha must live with. And mm -hmm. what are those exceptions? 
Well, a good example is if we think of the heyday, not only of colonialism, but they also, if you look in many countries, it's not just the United States. If you look at, for instance, Belgium, particularly Leopold Congo, the activities that happened there, Germany and Namibia, I mean, but not just there, but but also don't make it exclusively whites. There may, if we think about the treatment of Muslims and um, um, non-Hindus in India, if we think about the complexity of certain people in Japan, how they treat in Japan, we could go down the list career, right? So we got to get rid of this holier than thou stuff. Mm-hmm. If we begin to look at those, what we begin to realize is that there's some groups who are designated with a license. Mm-hmm. And the license basically says they could do anything they want to people outside their group with impunity. And this is why you could see people go lynch or just rape people, pose, all the evidence is there, they did it, and they go home and they're fine. That is like, since we're, I'm speaking to you and you're in the UK, this is basically giving an entire so-called race of people James Bond license, the license to kill, the license to do whatever you want with impunity. Yeah. Now, if you are given that license, you could say nobody should have that license. And what you could do is you can be an ally with the people who don't have the license to fight for a world in which nobody has that license. That is a political act. So the problem with the privilege discourse, it goes nowhere. We've had it for years, it's gone nowhere. Nowhere Mm -hmm. than to focus on guilt and degradation and that's it. We need political action. And so we need to have something where every human being can be involved in fighting for what every human being should have. Um, I was, um, when I was reading the book, thinking about this idea that you um, expand on this idea that um, what anti-black societies fear is their reflection in black consciousness, um, which actually is, is in my, I believe, very linked to what, what you're saying, which is that if people actually saw what it is that legitimates a system that says, you know, when my child dies, it's a tragedy, but when your child drowns in the Mediterranean fleeing war, it's collateral damage. You know, that the idea that there is a differential in how we react to human suffering is grounded in something that I feel we can intuitively tap into as feeling wrong. There is no obvious reason why one life should merit more sadness, more grief, um, more value than another. Uh, And yet this is omnipresent in the world around us. Um, And so I was wondering, does black consciousness as it is manifest in philosophy, in the arts, in literature, does it offer up, would you say, a mirror to white society that white society isn't ready to see maybe in in many cases because of what the pervasiveness of whiteness has allowed us to accept as normal? Yes. In fact, (laughs) you just beautifully said it. You've just described the problem of narcissism. Yes. Right. The narcissist seeks self-deception. Right. The bad faith I talked about. The fear of black consciousness is the fear of truth. And as you know, I talk about it. I do talk about narcissism throughout the book. And they're different. Such an interesting story to interrupt, as I really would love for our our listeners to know. So you're that you would describe whiteness as a form of narcissism. Correct. Yeah. And and will you tell us about that? Because you you, I mean, I, I thought it was so interesting and so in tune with how so many people have also described to me their experience of whiteness. 
Sure. And as we know, narcissism has many layers. There's abject narcissism, malignant narcissism, there are many kinds. But the basic insight is this. When any you pick any category of human being, when we're living our daily lives, we're not thinking of ourselves in, in these categories, whether they're white, black, etc. You know, um, a typical white person who's legally designated white gets up in the morning and just thinks of herself, himself or themselves as human beings. But it's interesting what happens when they have to think of themselves as white. Mm. The moment they have to think of themselves as white. So, so we have the first step. A typical person who's labeled white doesn't start the day and look and say, oh, thank God, still white. And I mean, that's, that's right. There's some who do, but that's a pathology. Right? Yeah. But most people are not walking around thinking about themselves as white all the time. But when they are thinking about themselves as white, some very interesting things happen in terms of what we think whiteness is. And one of the things that whiteness is, I, I, to save time, I'll just illustrate it with an example I give in the book. Yeah. I was examining, I was examining um, a student who wrote a thesis in which there was a chapter called What Do White, Peoples Want? White People Want? So part of knowing that the consciousness is to talk about want. And it's, it's a reformulation of the Freudian question, what do women want, et cetera. Mm. But it's rather interesting. He, the, the, the student went through all kinds of you know, literary gymnastics and stuff to articulate this position. But at a certain point, I, I asked the student, I said, you know, um, people have been answering this question for many years. And if you ask most people who are not designated white, what do white people want? They have an answer that many white people actually do realize when they hear it. And he said, well, what is it? And I said, the answer is everything. Mm. The presupposition that by virtue of being white, you have a right to everything, mm -hmm. including even the suffering, everything. If it, it, in other words, that example you gave is to say it's only really victimization if it's the person designated in that category. And but it's also the idea that you should have access, that there are no limits imposed on you whatsoever. But this is now we, if we back it up, imagine if you had a child and you told the child, honey, you have a right to everything, everything you want. You should never be curtailed over and over and over. You know what you're going to raise. You're going to raise someone who really is outraged at any moment of not getting what that person wants. And mm. if you look at a lot of the history of what we call whiteness, that has been the behavior. It mirrors onto those narcissistic practice of malignant narcissism. The right to have everything. The, the idea that everything must be rewritten into centering those individuals. The idea that ultimately, ultimately, the, 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 perspective on anything that is good must come their way and there must never be any moment in which there is a kind of questioning of the legitimacy of those individuals. Now, if we look at the turn to the, the kind of right wing, very racist stuff happening in the world today, it's an effort to break the mirror that says, you know what, what you are, white people, are human beings. Right, you are a people who make mistakes. And at the end of the day, the real issue is to say, look, there were problematic things done. Let us work together to make the world better. No, 
Instead, there's a, a view of saying, no, we have the right to what we had, and we have the right to continue doing so, and anybody who challenges it must be eliminated. That is narcissism. And narcissism always wants to destroy any mirror that says the truth. It's, it's the, the classic example, as we all know, is the emperor has no clothes. Mm. The outrage when the little boy says, you know, the emperor is naked. <laughs> That's the whole point. Narcissism is to get the entire world to be complicit in a collective lie that gives the self a preferred image instead of the truth. And so do you feel that um, if we were going to describe what the mirror, if we're going to call it like the black consciousness mirror, if we could hold that up and describe what you, what the truth should actually be of whiteness in it. And I know obviously you've described narcissism as being what we'd see, but is there any, um, what, what would the picture, uh, what, what does the picture look like of whiteness in a, a white uh, mirror versus the black consciousness mirror? Like, what does the whiteness mirror hold up to itself? And and therefore, like, what is the contrast if you removed it and were like, here, now look in the black consciousness mirror. Like, what what would we see as the big differences? I'm particularly interested in the white whiteness mirror because I think a lot of the time we a lot of white people don't realize that we are actually looking in a mirror of our own creation that's distorted. Well, if we go back to that insight where I said everything, let's start with, the what, what, if you speak to most people who are not white, they don't say they have a right to everything. They say they have a right to have some things. You notice even when I was talking about those rights before, it's not everything. They're just basic things people should have. And some people may say, well, I would like love. I would like friendship. I would like, these are very specific relationships. But when you say everything, that is so, so far reaching that it loses the quality of those very specific things. So if we go back to the example you're asking, what the white mirror wants to give back is, is this lie. You are perfect. Perfect, there's no such thing as a perfect human being. So if you're perfect, you're not a human being. But since white people are actually human beings, that means to maintain the life that perfection, they have to deny any contradiction to it. Mm. And so, for instance, in the text, I give an example where you could ask a group of white children to, to talk about things about black people, and they would have all of these negative things they'll say, but then you ask them, do they lack those things? And it turns out all the things they're describing about black people are in their everyday life yeah. because they're people. So if we go back to the black mirror, what the black mirror is trying to say is that, hey, yo, white people, remember you're human beings, which mm. means you have imperfections. And part mm. of being human beings is how to work with and improve our imperfections. But if you start with the notion that you're intrinsically perfect, you have nowhere to go. You don't have to change. You are perfect. And that is the lie. Mm. 
Um, you you discuss many things in the book um, to, related to pop culture. Uh, one, of course, is the idea that whiteness fears black bodies inhabited by conscious black minds. And you reference, of course, the cult classic now, Jordan Peele's Get Out. Um, the desire for black bodies with white minds, which I think is kind of at the, the core, at the heart of the uh, horror element of uh, Peele's film. Um, do you think this is something that's widely understood? Um, and in that sense, was the popularity of Jordan Peele's film that people recognized that truth? Or because my sense is it's still quite a niche truth, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe a lot of people did fully get it because it was a very popular film that did very well. Well, one of the things I repeat in the book is that we need when we're talking about human beings, we need to or human reality, if I will, uh, we need to understand that we are not one size fits all to address human reality, we need to do so multidimensionally. And this means that there are layers at work. Most psychoanalysts would remind us of this. So what people will say to themselves and what their subconscious is recognizing are not always the same. And one of the ways I unlock that in the book is to talk a lot about myths. Myths are enduring. You, you know, I, I always quip that my children hate to see movies with me because two or three minutes in, I was like, okay, I know it's going to happen. And, and they're like, they're thinking I'm some great sleuth. I'm like, no, it's because I study myths. Once you know who the characters are mythically, you know what they're going to do. And so, but of course, most people are not introduced in the, the way people used to be introduced to myths because myths are stories told and retold. And we're still retelling them in these movies. So that's why I start with the movies, which is the retelling. And then I introduce the reader through it to the history of the myths. And they so they also get a deeper understanding. So if we look at Get Out, people at the subconscious level know the myths and they know what's going on. But you see, part of anti-Black racism and the construction of white supremacy, and I repeat, they're not the same thing. A white supremacist society may say that white people are superior, but they're not necessarily anti-Black. They could desire Black. An anti-black society is anti-black, and you could get rid of white supremacy and still have anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. But now we get to this thing, right? In order to be both white supremacists and anti-black, it means people have to almost like a mantra say, I don't desire black people. Mm -hmm. I cannot desire black people. Mm -hmm. But of course, if somebody walks around you and keep telling you over and over, he doesn't desire you, you're like, I think you desire me. <laughs> 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 right? So, so and we see it. It's all over the place. There are white people yeah. saying they absolutely hate and don't desire black people. It's because they do. So all of this stuff about hating black bodies, no, 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 no. And the film beautifully brings out this. Now, I have to tell you, when I first saw the movie, I didn't like it. Oh. And a lot of a lot of people think um, think when I write about movies, it's movies I like. It's when I reflected on the movie philosophically, I loved it. Yeah, I, and and that's so for me the um the movies I talk about in the book is to have a conversation with the reader. In other mm -hmm. words, and and Jamaica Kincaid had put it this way. She said because she loves the book, and she said, uh, "Lewis, um, you don't try to please the reader. You're trying to engage them. 
And I thought that's very astute because engaging the reader is to get the reader to think for her, him or their self. Mm. And to do that, I need to provide the evidential resources to do so. So, yeah, the film beautifully brings out that the fear is not of black bodies. The fear is of a black consciousness looking back because the fear is facing the truth, the displeasing truth. Mm. And and this is one of the reasons why, for instance, people think about minstrelsy. Minstrelsy is a kind of playing out what we call today blackface. It's a kind of playing out an external blackness with an internal whiteness looking back. Mm -hmm. And that's what is so desirable. Mm -hmm. But but that internal whiteness looking back is a double movement because that mirror you brought up, which is a lying mirror, it means you can have an external blackness that will offer that world its lie. Mm, a validation. Mm, yes, I see it. Um, I, I, you, you tread where angels dare not in the book on uh, one issue that I wanted to ask you about. You touch on transracialism mm -hmm. and similarities drawn uh, by the philosopher Rebecca Tuval with transgender identities. Um, the idea being that neither identity is essential and could thus be constructed or reconstructed and I know that there's been a lot of debate around this particular issue a lot of very heated debate around this issue and I was wondering what your personal thoughts are on this sure um, first of all Tuvel's argument was basically a more formal um, analytical argument which is if you're going to take the view that all identities are constructed then ultimately why do you privilege in the sense of centering on one set of identities that are constructed versus another set of identities. That's all she's saying. She's saying the arguments in defense of one versus the other, the same counter arguments could be made. She was never saying that to be constructed racially and to be constructed at the level of sex and gender are the same. Yeah. She was just saying, if you're saying they're different, you need to offer more than simply the question of saying they're different. Now, of yeah. course, people bring up the histories, but even the historical arguments, because a lot of people, for instance, don't know that, say, in the world of Aristotle, there weren't women the way we think of women today, mm. because Aristotle defined women as undeveloped men. <laughs> and yeah. we know today that women are not undeveloped men. Women are just fully developed human beings. <laughs> you know, that's right. So, but that's the whole point. We have a conceptual framework to deal with what we are. So the woman of today, right? And this is not all people in the past, but would be unrecognizable for, for, for someone like Aristotle. But similarly, in their societies with eight, nine, seven, whatever genders. Mm. And for a lot of us who live in a binary or, 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 or a triumvirate model, that's gonna be hard to understand. So here's the thing, what I argue is this. I do point out in the book, for instance, that there have always been historically people who become members of groups and their lineage changes. Mm. That's always been the case. I also point out that actually there's a lot of empirical evidence of transracial people in the, in the past, but they didn't have the language. Mm. There are many people who, for instance, who left the UK and went to Jamaica or Barbados Mm. And they didn't say anything because, as we know, the morphology of people designated white is broad, just as those designated black. 
and their entire lineage from there is remembered as black. So mm-hmm. there, there are all kinds of things. So, so, but the thing I bring up is something different. Mm-hmm. My actual position is uh, some humility. Who says we are the last story of what humanity is? That there are other human beings to come, and as they come, they're going to or, or organize ways of being human that we may not even find recognizable. But mm-hmm. if we set the condition for them to do it with dignity and respect, that's the political question, they can do so in a healthy way. So I'm not at all threatened by the idea of transracial people. Mm-hmm. What, what, and we have to make a distinction between opportunists. That's a different thing. Those are not sure. people who are just like, those are people who are trying to undermine mechanisms of justice for people who are discriminated against. That's something different. You know, mm-hmm. I bring up like the movie Soul Man, you know, about a, a rich white guy who pretended to be black so he could get, go to Harvard. That's just dishonesty. That's not a transracial person. Yeah. But but there are people, but it always struck me because the island I was born in, Jamaica, and I'm from a very, what in today's life, when I, when I was in my childhood, I didn't see my family as multiracial. But when we left Jamaica, we're considered multiracial. And so that's very strange to me. But when I think of uh, my maternal line, for instance, I have relatives who are from Irish Jews and I have mm-hmm. relatives who are from the 19th century Jews in Palestine. Right. That's, you know, and because it was called just Palestine in the 19th century, when they came to Jamaica, they lived in the Jamaican context because it's a black national consciousness as just simply light skinned black people. And similarly, the Irish Jews, Sephardi Jews, but when they, you know, as just simply people and their identity, because they became Jamaicans, were like light-skinned black people. But when they travel outside of Jamaica, they go through (laughs) racial changes, not themselves, but what's imposed upon them. Right. And at a certain point, if they're to be truthful, they have to say, I am defined one way in one context, differently in another, and the way I live myself and my identity, because I also have, through my paternal line, Chinese relatives who are morphologically Chinese, but when they speak, you just, if you close your eyes, you just hear black people. They know they're Chinese. They also could speak Cantonese, but they're Jamaicans, and they have, you see what I'm getting at? They have also a black identity. And it's silly for us to say those people are not both Chinese and black. They're not morphologically black, but they're black in the sense of Jamaican blacks. And so it struck me that we're closing off the creative potential of how we could relate to each other as human beings. And so I do not in any way find transraciality threatening. I see it as a clue to something that's more to come. Because right now there are, we, we, please, I'm sure there are human beings walking around right now that completely defy even the categories I'm talking about on yeah. many levels. And many people, when, if we remember we are relationships, the relationships they get into will transform their consciousness and the communities around them. And there's more to come. Um, it, listening to you, I was reminded of a, um, a debate I watched recently um, uh, with the uh, musical artist, uh, White. Uh, oh, he's a musician, I'm pretty sure, White Yardy. I think he's Jamaican. Um, and the debate was whether he was appropriating black culture. 
And I just, uh, it was a very interesting debate for someone who was born and uh, raised, at least I think he was raised since the age of six in uh, Jamaica. You know, he went to school in Jamaica. He lived his whole life in Jamaica. And it was almost like a questioning of his right to almost identify with Jamaica, which from the UK is still associated with like a black identity, but which I guess for a lot of Jamaicans that I know would, like you say, they'll be like, well, we have Chinese and we have Irish and we have, you know, obviously African ancestry, but all mixed together. There's not like a, a reification maybe of, of what it means to be Jamaican in the way that we do maybe from the UK imposing that view onto the island from the outside. But well, well, maybe one for another another time, because there's a few more things I did want to ask you about, unless you want to well, comment. Well, very well, a short answer, point Please, I want to yeah. make is I'm a critic of the discourse of appropriation and authenticity. Yeah. Uh, they're very problematic. They close off human potential. potential. We should just get to the truth of the matter. There's a distinction between appropriation and misrepresentation. The fact is there are people, if people are going to lie and misrepresent the history, Whiteyardy is not lying or misrepresenting anything. He's a person, he says what his history is, and he is, as far as I'm concerned, a Jamaican. End of story. Now, there are people, however, who misrepresent history. There are people who, for instance, erase the fact that a lot of technology and science were created by women. Most people today, they'll imagine the history of 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 ideas, science, and art as male. Today, archaeo paleo archaeological research reveals, for instance, that approximately seventy five percent of Paleolithic paintings were done by women. But but the in people's consciousness, they imagine a bunch of dudes running in painting these things. Seventy five percent is pretty significant. And what, but but the moment you think that women did that, you begin to rethink what those paintings were for, mm -hmm. because before, if you're going to think of them in an exclusively masculinized way, then you imagine them are about hunting and all kinds of other stuff. But then, when you think about them in a different way, we think about there's something that we still do today, and again, it's connected to certain realities of how we organize the lives of women in in, in our societies around children. We often have a thing called children's books where we show pictures of animals and things and so forth. And so if we look at those as also pedagogical, we are, when, and we understand that ancient women were also learning and studying reality and teaching it, it gives us a way of understanding things that address the epistemological or knowledge injustice of erasing the role of women in, the, in, 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 in intellectual history. And I often bring up in conversations like this, for instance, two women who are fundamental for us to be able to have this conversation. One is Ada Lovelace, right? Lord Byron's daughter, who developed the algorithm for the computer. Mm. And the other one is Hadi Lamar, who developed the technology for, for, for wireless, right? basically wireless technology for the computer. And we could add an African-American man, Latimer, who developed the filament in the light bulb that enables us to be able to see each other in, mm. in, in these screens. Those are, that's actual history, but this is not about appropriation. This is about misrepresentation, and this is back to the lies I talked about before. But if that truth is there, then we can understand that all human beings contribute and create things. And so I have no problem with White Yardy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't see it as appropriation. He's doing the music he grew up with, the music he loves. End of story. And if we love the music, I think if you if you give a gift of beautiful music to the world. 
people participating it are participating in it because they enjoy it. They're not pretending. So, for instance, if there's a person in Greenland who's dancing to reggae, that person's not appropriate reggae. That person's enjoying reggae. I love right. the fact that there are people in Beijing listening to the blues and hip hop right now. They're not appropriating. Mm -hmm. They're enjoying it. Well, we know, um, I, I, as someone who's lived in different parts of the world, I feel very similarly about this because I know that in some parts of the world that I've lived, it's definitely perceived at least as even respectful to kind of appropriate even clothing, right? So if you wear what people locally wear, it's almost like reverence and respect for an item of clothing culturally that you're saying, wow, that's a beautiful item. Like, I want to share with that. I want to be part of your group. I want to show I'm not trying to distinguish myself in any hierarchical way vis-a-vis -vis you. Um, and I've genuinely found that actually people respond very positively to that rather than saying, why are you trying to dress like us, for example? But we, we could we could have a, a much longer debate on that. I wanted to, before we go to the quick fire round, I wanted to ask you about radical love. And I wanted to ask you about radical love and its role within anti-racist struggles. Sure, I'm, I'll give a short answer because people could Please. see the elabor elaboration in the book. To understand radical love, compare, contrast it with narcissistic love. Most people have, have, have had narcissistic love forced down their, their throat. Narcissistic love is the lie that you could only love people who are similar to you or pretty much like you as much as possible. So if you go back to the mirror, all you want to see is yourself over and over again in the mirror. That, mm -hmm. right, that's one model. But the pro and that's a colonial model. But I think one of the best critiques of that model is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is an anti-colonial novel because the colonialist wants to create its their own image, but then they look back and recoil at their image because the image that comes back is showing the truth of what they're doing. They're create they're imposing monstrosity on others. So, but but the, the but narcissistic love basically is the lie that you could only love yourself. Now we have the capacity to love those who are not like ourselves, those who are different, not only at the level of other human beings across different class, race, blah, 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 lines. But we also have the capacity to love even other species, members of other yeah. species. This is a, a powerful, beautiful human ability. Now, why this is important is because radical love is a commitment for the freedom of the other human being to exemplify what him, him her, or, or they, right? What they are, okay? And so this celebration of the freedom of the, uh, that's what you love, right? Their growth, that is radical love. And people who do actual radical revolutionary acts, right, of commit, they, they, they exemplify commitment to radical love because ultimately if you do things that make a difference politically, it'll affect the lives of people you'll never know. And the idea that you're going to give something lovingly something that is going to enable people to flourish and grow, and you don't know them. That's about as radically different from you as they could get. That is radical love. And I see that as the heart of real political action, that ultimately we're building a future in which those who inherit the conditions we have set for them, instead of saying, my God, why did they do that? Look at what they put us in. Instead, they look back and say, wow, thank God they acted. And that is a profound situation because, you see, the people who enable you and me to be able to have our conversation, many of them are now anonymous, and they could never have known you and me. But you and I 
are forever grateful, I presume, Absolutely. because because they did act. And yeah. so I see such people as exemplifications of radical love. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for that. And what a beautiful way to end the main body. We now have our, our very quick fire round, if I may. Sure. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? Whiteness is the belief that you have a right to everything and that others should be suppressed from access to those things. What is the root of racism? The root of racism is not one thing, but many things. It's the metaphysical root that only certain people should exist. It is the theological one that rationalizes it in terms of a particular religion. Historically, Christianity was one of those. It is the deification of a system, like not only capitalism, but a particular society in such a way that anybody who contradicts it doesn't belong. The roots of racism, in other words, is part of the construction of a non-human reality as a standard that erases our human relationships with each other. Wow. What is the opposite of whiteness? The opposite of whiteness ultimately is going to be the affirmation of our humanity. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? The answer is we don't know. But if we start with the question of, let's start with a world beyond us may have proliferations of other races. So if that's the case, we better start learning how to respect people of different races in this world. So I don't think the issue is to erase race. The issue is learn to respect people of different races. However, it is possible for new identities to emerge that are beyond race. And that is not even about post-racial. It might be something so radically different that we who are having a conversation today may not even be able to understand it. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? It is a useful conceptual tool to understand the specific kind of racism that's governed by white supremacy and anti-black racism. But those are not the only kinds of racism. It's useful for those, but it's not going to be particularly helpful, for instance, if you're a Dalit in India, you're going to have to use something very different. Thank you so much, Professor Gordon, for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, if people want to connect with you, your work, your output, is there a particular space you'd like to direct them to? Uh, certainly. The easiest, of course, is to just Google Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, R, middle initial Gordon, and you'll find a lot of those places. You can find me at Twitter at Lou Gord. You can also just simply look at the Yukon Philosophy Department. Uh, University of Connecticut Philosophy Department. I'm the head of the department. That's the easiest way to start. And of course, you could also look at the book that uh, through Macmillan and through Penguin Random House, and they have websites there and ways to connect with me. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for taking the time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so, so much. Thank you.